Welcome to Launchpad, the unique radio show and podcast that celebrates new book releases and the authors that created them. Now, let's take off with your host, Grace Salmon. This is Launchpad. On behalf of Mary Helen Sheriff, the author marketing coach, and myself, Grace Salmon, welcome to episode 14 of Launchpad. Today we're going to have Amy Bernstein, Julia Brewer Daly, Linda Moore, and Marion O'Shea. This is being recorded in front of a live audience, so if you are joining us live, please feel free to leave a comment, ask a question, tell us that you're here. In this special episode, we're going to be visiting ancient places with stories and secrets to people and characters with stories and secrets of their own. Let's join these fascinating authors and learn about their unique tales. Let's start off by welcoming Amy L. Bernstein with her novel, The Nighthawkers, Julia Brewer Daly with her second novel, The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch, Linda Moore with Attribution, and Marion O'Shea Wernicke with Out of Ireland. Welcome to each and every one of you, and welcome to our viewers. Thank you for being here on Launchpad. Thank so, you, Grace. It's great to be here. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's my distinct pleasure. What I'd like to do, Amy, is start out with you. Tell us about the Nighthawkers. Sure. Well, this was my first attempt to dive into the romance genre, um, which I had not written in before. And I wanted to see if I could borrow some of the key tropes, but still make the story very much mine. And I think I did that. So it's really a story about an archaeologist who has to choose between her handsome first lover and the irresistible stranger who helps her discover a powerful destiny. I call it a soulful romance, and it's full of archaeology tidbits and artifacts and talking artifacts and all kinds of whimsical things like that, with, of course, a lot of romance woven in. And I understand you do a lot of research in all of your work, including when you do a romance. That is absolutely true. I wanted to take a really deep dive into archaeology, which is a minor obsession of mine. And uh, I was able to do that and bring so much atmosphere and detail, I think, and texture to this book um, from real archaeological finds mixed in with very fictional ones. And I don't think that readers can tell them apart, which is half the fun. Absolutely. And your characters, and we'll talk more about this in a bit, have secrets that they keep from each other. So I was fascinated by that. Julia, your characters, multi-generational family saga, fifth daughter of Thorn Ranch. Tell us about your novel. Well, Grace, you know, I call myself a Texan with a Southern accent because I grew up in Mississippi to be buried in Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I became enamored with these generational ranches. Some are just huge. And the ranch in my book mirrors the... Uh, King Ranch, which was a million acres at one time. And if you know what a million acres looks like, it's larger than New York and L.A. combined. And the heiress to that large ranch stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property. And she risks her life numerous times to escape, and she's recaptured. But believing that she might be cursed, the people want to kill her to save their lives. So it, it alternates between points of view between Emma and her mother, Josie. And it explores the themes of 
family obligations because a lot of the ranches out here are being turned into subdivisions because the children don't want to take over the ranch. And it's so important to keep those alive to those matriarchs and patriarchs. And it kind of turns the old uh, cowboy uh, stereotype on its head because these are all women who own this this ranch through the generations. Oh, sounds like a fabulous read. And we have Sally Cole Mish joining us, and she said some of her favorite writers and authors' friends are with us. So, Sally, thank you, and Sally. thank you, everybody else who is uh, watching us as well. Linda Moore, also a book with secrets in it and fascinating historical references. So, tell us about your book, Attribution. Thanks. Here it is, the book. So proud of it. Debut author at 75. I worked Fabulous. a lot of years to get here. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and thank you, everybody. Um, I <clears throat> Attribution is the story of a young art historian who flees her grieving family and heads to New York to complete her doctorate, where she runs into a tough, sexist professor who she despairs might not let her pass the program until she finds a hidden painting and then she takes the painting to Spain to find experts and prove it's a masterpiece and there she joins forces with a uh, impoverished duke aren't they all aren't they all <laughs> somebody please find a duke that has money you know? uh, yeah. mine does all title but, oh, all good. title oh, and that's no good substance to know, good to know. <laughs> And so uh, they they join forces together, and Kate, the protagonist, has to decide between things she really wants in her life and the truth. And that was part of my motivation for writing the book, is the importance of truth and how we handle it in our lives. So I have enjoyed being with book clubs and uh Speaking with a lot of people, I like that people tell me they weren't interested in art until they read the book and they learned something about art. You really don't need to know art history to understand the book. And also Spain. I have people telling me they're going to Spain this summer <laughs> because they were so excited about learning about Madrid and so on, where I studied at one time. But in any case, um, that's my story, and I'm I'm very excited to be here with you and also learn about your books as well. Well, you know, we're going to move from Spain right to out of Ireland with Marion O'Shea. Wernicke, tell us about your book, please. Certainly. Here's the cover, Out of Ireland, and it is inspired by my great-grandmother's story. I didn't know too many facts about it, but... I imagined that was kind of this arc, but I imagined her brother and it's very fictional. It's not really her biography or anything. So the novel opens with 16 year old Eileen O'Donovan, the protagonist up in the branches of a tree as she's watching a storm come in from the Atlantic over Bantry Bay in the west of Ireland. And it's 1867 and Ireland is still under the boot of the British. Um, be, the British and the Anglo-Irish landowners that own the big houses in the area. The O'Donovan family, Mamie O'Donovan, who's a widow, her two sons, Martin and Michael, and daughter Eileen, are tenants who work on the 
uh, estate of the Earl of Blackthorne, and he is rich, all right? <clears throat> Eileen works as a maid in Blackthorne House, um, and this is based on Bantry House. This is a little PS inside because there is a, a large, beautiful house uh, there in Bantry. Anyway, uh, and Eileen wants to study, but her mother and older brother are wanting her to marry an older widower. And her brother, Michael, she's looking to him for help. And he's involved with the Irish Republican Brotherhood. So those two are the main characters. And the story follows them for five years through their self-determination, how they're fighting to have their own lives rather than what fate has handed them. And so part of it takes place in Ireland, then the voyage over to America, and then the rest in, in America. So that's my book. Wonderful. I think culture is such an interesting part of each of your books. And Michelle Ann Waite has joined us. Uh, Michelle is a member of Bookish Road Trip. We're always lovely to have her. She also does great book reviews. Uh, so, uh, Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Let's get back to that theme of uh, culture. And, Amy, let's go back to you for that, because I know that uh, in your professional background as reporter and journalist, and you, you love this interplay between politics and culture. How did that play out in your novel, The Night Hawkers? I think it's very challenging to take themes like that. And you're right, those are things I'm always concerned about. Um, politics, culture, injustice, social justice, and the intersection, and how they affect people's lives. Well, trying to shoehorn that into a romance that's still going to please romance readers is kind of no, no easy feat. And um, the book is full of um, all kinds of sort of magical realism. And I think what I did is I shoehorned those concerned, um, those concerns uh, in part by the way people treat um, ancient um, found objects that were very, that were very important to the cultures where they originated and how um, the book was quite clear about a point of view about um, there's a very thriving, this is for real and in the book, a very thriving black market in antiquities where basically things are just bought and sold um, to the highest bidder. And as Linda probably well knows, as in the art market, people just view these things as investments and they really don't, um, they don't properly um, value or have any interest in returning some of these uh, pieces back to the uh, cultures or indigenous people from, from whence they came. So, the book manages to weave in a lot of indignation and a writing of wrongs. Um, the heroine does some writing of wrongs around that while still developing uh, a, a romantic uh, a romantic story along all the themes that people need and expect. So I, I, I crammed a lot in there on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great answer and uh, makes me more intrigued about Nighthawkers. Julia, let's pop over to you because the culture that you spoke of is really a, a changing one now in Texas, isn't it? It really is. And it, of course, saddens the people who have been here for generations and who have worked this land and don't want to see it turned into parking lots. So um, there's a there's a real struggle with the, the young folks who might not be interested in staying on that land and working it because it's hard work to work a ranch and to make it profitable uh, if possible. And so um, I think we're losing a lot of our young people from from these um, beautiful pieces of property. 
And my book speaks about an ancient people living on the property. You know, there are a lot of uh, uncontacted tribes still. And um, when people first read the book and found that she walked through the cave to get to these people, they assumed it was magical realism, Amy, and um, thought of Outlander or some of those Mm -hmm. comparisons to the um, to my book. But it, it really is a. A contemporary story and there are people living there and one of the lines I think kind of sums it up in in the story is um, she the Emma the protagonist asked the um, older man in the tribe what are you doing on my property uh-huh. and he says I've been here for many many years I, I perhaps it's my property that you are on so I think that that push and pull of of who actually owns the property is interesting. Or perhaps none of us do, and we are all just here on far well, on, I, on I spend part of the year living in Hawaii, and in Hawaii has a great history about property. There was no concept, like you couldn't own the sky, you couldn't own the land or the water. And uh, of course that all upended when Western uh, folks came to Hawaii and started to own property. And it's still an issue there, believe it or not. Maybe, Maybe other native peoples I think struggle to get back properties that they owned. But I wanted to comment on Amy's point about um, right now there is a huge issue about reappropriating these objects. I don't know if you've been following the press, but the Metropolitan Museum and others are really Mm -hmm. trying hard to figure out what belongs to who. And maybe ownership is such a false uh, god that we all pursue, right? Um, Fascinating. I love the way all these books are bringing in these these sort of it's bringing in history, it's bringing in um, research and how wonderful that we can use the lens of fiction to right. really tell these truths and tell these stories that 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 don't get told or don't get told often enough. Um, uh, and so I, it's I wonder I love hearing that that those traits in, in both your books, Linda and, and Julia. And I think that's very I, one of my favorite parts of Launchpad is how do we connect these um, important themes and how do we uh, share our stories. And, you know, I'm just going to do a shout out to a wonderful author who does a lot of writing, uh, Linda, about Hawaii called Linda Uliset, if you don't know her. Yeah, Uh, no, I do know her. And I also discovered another author when I was there recently. So I'm going to pursue, who knows, my next book's about Bogota. It's called Five Days in Bogota. So it's maybe I'm hitting all the continents here, (laughs) Uh, but uh, I don't know the third book where that will go. Uh, I I do think it it is really interesting to me. And when I opened my art gallery, I thought about this a lot, is art was a way to make certain topics like political topics, as well as understanding other cultures, much more accessible to people. People who wouldn't go pick up a nonfiction book and read about these things, discover these things uh, through the entertainment, which frankly fiction provides. Uh, that, you know, it's almost like this um, 
sort of hidden learning that happens through some an enjoyable story. And I love that because whatever door you come in, uh, it's all about learning. I, I would strongly agree. Marianne, let's go to you because culture is something that your characters, um, I don't want to say they leave behind their culture, but they certainly leave behind a chunk of their culture. And this is your second book. I'd also love to hear a little bit about that, which is beautiful. So uh, let's look at both of those through the lens of culture, please. Well, going first to the first one toward that, which is beautiful. I, I did work in Peru for three years. I was in Lima. But I wanted to tell a story about when Americans come in to work in another country. It's rather presumptuous. Okay, we're, we're going to help them solve their problems. And that's something that my character in the book comes to understand. She's a young American nun. She's working up in the Altiplano. She knows, does not know the language of the people who speak Aymara or Quechua. She does has studied Spanish, but she has to have an interpreter and she's out of her depth. Plus, physically, the Altiplano is very high, so sometimes it's hard to breathe. And a, a taxi driver in Lima, before she gets up there, says to her, and this actually happened to me, why are you here? Aren't there problems in your own country? And that was the time when Robert F. Kennedy was being assassinated, etc. So. So that whole cultural aspect is very strong in the novel. And she's questioning whether she should be there. Plus, she falls in love with this Irish priest she's working with, et cetera. Okay, so there's a love story in there, too. In Out of Ireland, of course, the Irish have been colonized by the British for almost 500 years since the time of Queen Elizabeth. So Michael and Eileen are living with pr the presence of British troops um, the the Anglo-Irish are the upper class. They have expropriated the land that used to be for the Irish themselves. The Irish are not allowed to vote. Uh, Irish Catholics were not allowed to vote at that time, were not allowed to go to university, could not speak their own language, which was Irish or Gaelic. So there's another expropriation, you know. And then Michael finally gets in trouble with the IRB in the novel. So he says, I'm going to America where I can work for the Irish cause, but he gets involved in crime. Okay, so that's, but that, those are the cultural elements there. So I think culture, I, I love that in each of your books because also all of you are very well traveled and uh, you know there have been many connections between those of you who own art galleries or are involved in the art world. So as authors, we have uh, some wonderful uh, connections as well on, on those pieces. Amy, I'd like to go to you for a minute and this is gonna be for each of you. I wanna talk about genre. Um, Amy, specifically, I know you write in multiple genres and in multiple, uh, modalities, if you will, playwriting, reporter, um, novel. So I'd like to hear each from each of you about genre. I, I feel that I'm a bit at war with genre for the reasons you just yes. alluded to, Grace. I don't wish to pick a lane. I would be probably more successful and sell more books if I found a niche and just stayed in it. But for me, I find the story that I really want to tell, and then I really instinctively figure out the, the way that I want to tell it. So that's what finds me writing, um, you know, YA fantasy, uh, a dystopian mystery thriller, um, a paranormal romance, 
Um, and I just uh, completed a, um, a pretty scathing um, political satire. So, <laughs> so uh, it's, you know, it's always story first. And so you really have to make a bargain with the genre that you do. You should know what genre you're writing in. I think you do have to know that because there are conventions and tropes that you have to at least nod to in order for it to be discernible in some type of classifying way. Um, but, you know, I love the push and pull of figuring out, well, what can I do differently here inside this genre and still have it really be recognized? And I can still call this a romance. I can still call this a mystery. Um, and so uh, I'm constantly kind of making those bargains um, with myself and the way that I want to tell the story. But it's very exciting to tackle new genres and kind of figure them out like a, like a complicated puzzle. I love exactly what you said because as I, uh, as several of you know, I've been involved in a writing uh, series of books on writing craft. And one of the things that I was so struck by was the story does have to drive the genre. You don't say, I'm going to write women's fiction and then put your story in it. And I think that takes us back to a very essential question that I ask many, many authors of why are you writing your book? What is that story that has to come out? But then to go to that next level of having to match it to genre, I think is, a, is an important puzzle. And then to learn the craft of that genre as well. Marion, what about you and your writing and how you feel about genre? Well, it's funny with um, out of the first one toward that which is beautiful. It was set in 1960s, and they said that's historical fiction. And I said, "What? I was alive then. What?" Yes. <laughs> so, I I kind of hate these labels. I'm with Amy on that. You know, it's the story. Um, and, but to enter your book, you have to have a label on it. So nobody told Tolstoy when he wrote War and Peace, oh, you're writing historical fiction, I'm gonna put it in that. No, they didn't do it then, they just wanted good literature. But anyway, in, and of course in Out of Ireland, it's clearly historical fiction. Um, and the reason I wrote it was to honor the immigrant experience of my ancestors especially in the political climate we're living in now when there's such mean-spiritedness about immigration. And all of our families came from somewhere else unless we're Native American. So uh, what, what happened? Why did America lose this desire to incorporate all different cultures and languages? I don't know. But it, I, I think by writing a story about the past, it might make some readers reflect on their own parents and great grandparents, etc., and why they came here, freeing political oppression, poverty, you know, all the same reasons we see the people coming into Texas and, and everywhere in our country. So, you know, I, I don't want to say I wrote it for a message. No, I wrote it to tell a story. But I hope that that's in there. Thank you. And Julia, let's talk about genre. I think genre is just so that booksellers will know where to place us on the shelf. But I, I've called mine upmarket women's fiction because it's book club fiction. It's an adventure story. You know, when I looked and tried to find comps uh, for a Western, you only find romances with the cowboys or you have historical 
Westerns. I don't find contemporary Westerns, especially with women protagonists. So uh, I'm in kind of a lane by myself with this, this one book. And I'm, I'm so puzzled over the historical for my first book because it was set in the 60s as well. Absolutely. If I can jump in, Julia, I think you just, this is an excellent example, Julia, of why genre is so confining because you want to tell a story about a woman, a contemporary woman in Western culture and sort of Western quote unquote cowboy culture in a way. And, you know, there's no box for that right now. And, and, you know, but why should a, why should a book or a story ever have be forced to fit into a box? I did write and write and publish last year, an entire essay about the genrevocation of, of literature in which I really kind of railed against this in some details. So I'd be happy to share that at, at some point, but um, yes. Send us, send us that aim. That would be great. I, I am a warrior in that war as well. And I feel uh, constantly struggling and shocked even where you look online at online sellers and you see uh, that your book, it, my book is put in historical fiction. It's not, it's a contemporary story. Hi. There are historical elements. And I'm constantly, and then people want to call it a mystery or a suspense or whatever. So I, I also grab onto upmarket or literary fiction or whatever. Um, uh, I read recently a lot of debate about the, the trope of women's fiction. And yeah. is that, uh, <laughs> and I, I dealt with that around Latin American art. I mean, what is Latin American art? Latin America is such a diverse place. And uh, I don't know that the, it means anything uh, about, uh, about what the art looks like or what the book reads like. So uh, I'm not sure that we really serve anyone um, except, as you say, to just sort of organize the bookstore, the library. The search um, engines of the world, yes. Right. Linda, let's just stay with you for a minute. There was a line that I loved. I think it was in your bio, um, or it might have been in the blurb about your book, about uh, a puzzle and how the past unlocks the future. Each of your books talks a little bit about that. So let's talk about that, starting with you, Linda, about how the past unlocks the future. <clears throat> well, I think that uh, one of the things that my protagonist discovers is how much... Uh, many assumptions she makes about the past that others make about the past, whether it's attributing an artwork uh, where people don't really do the homework or the research. Uh, it is said something like 40% of the works in American museums are misattributed. Wow. Uh, wow. Right. Uh, and, and part of that is either uh, just it slipped through, the stories get told, they get retold. And then you uncover something that is shocking in your background, in the history of something. And I think people want to ignore that um, and uh, and to face it is very difficult sometimes because it's it's not what you believe about yourself and yet we are all defined by the past okay amy past unlock the future as we begin to close up our time together um <laughs> the past unlocking the future i um i had written a novel before the nighthawkers 
in which I had uh, delved into um, a hidden um, archaeological site that was protect protected by an indigenous community. And I knew that I wanted to do more um, with that idea somehow in, uh, in the Nighthawkers, which is what sent me down the road of really centering the book around um, sort of artifacts and what do we owe to them um, and uh, how they speak to us. In this book, they literally speak. Um, and I've, I have a lifelong fascination with old buildings, with anything old. I was just born that way. And I always thought everyone found that fascinating and apparently they don't. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's so important to be open to time is this, you know, this extraordinarily mysterious continuum that we can barely fathom. And now that we're looking out into the stars, uh, back into time that we can't comprehend as human beings and looking at our own, uh, time, uh, back, uh, on earth, it's, it's just fascinating to dwell on these things, which, which border, you know, philosophy and, and art and, you know, and faith. And, and uh, I, I just, I love that stuff. I think it's really interesting. You, you've opened up so much for us there. Marion, past unlocked the future. It certainly was true of your characters. Certainly. Uh, Julia, I just wanted to mention, there's another Texas, contemporary Texas novel by Stacy Swan called Olympus, yeah. Texas. So right. that's kind she, of. She was one of my editors. All right. And she's she blurbed my book. Mine, and she's going to do an interview. But there we do. Connections abound. Yeah. Anyway, Ireland is certainly an example of the past and the future in, in parallel lines. I just read an article the other day about troubles heating up in Northern Ireland right now because of the border crisis and the fact that, that uh, Northern Ireland is connected to Britain still. And so it's not a member of the European Union anymore. So all of the troubles that are in my novel in 1867 with the British being in Ireland are still not over. And it's so interesting, an author, wonderful author by the name of Linda Henley uh, read my book and blurbed it. And she's, she's British. And she said, I didn't know a lot of this history about my own country. And I, that was shocking to me. But how should I be shocked when here we're trying to tell kids they can't study black history anymore? So why, why are we afraid? We're afraid of the past because these dirty secrets, these, these terrible, violent things that have happened. But we have to educate all our children in this. And our, and our books, I think each of your books does that in some ways. Julia, bring us home with The Past Unlocking the Future. Well, you know, the line that says the past is not even past, uh, I think explores uh, all the themes in, in my novel about the family, family obligations and especially mother-daughter relationships. We all write about that and the power of those um, parents' love and, and actually their expectations for their children. We all have those for our children, but some are more powerful than others and, and can conflict with what we would like to do in our own lives. So that's the past in my novel, Come to the Future. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you. Amy Bernstein with The Nighthawkers, beautiful cover, beautiful book. Julia Brewer-Daly, fifth daughter of Thorn Ranch. Linda Moore with Attribution and Marianne O'Shea Wernicke with Out of Ireland. I'm going to do a very short plug for my newest book with Emma DeHancey, which is 
inspired by this very radio show on the art of writing with one more coming out on publishing and one coming out on marketing. On behalf of uh, Mary Helen Sheriff, the author marketing coach and myself, thanks to each and every one of you for joining us in the audience and for joining me here at the launch pad. So thank, thank you, you, Grace. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, ladies. Good luck. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs> thanks for being here. This episode is copyrighted by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for visiting with us on Launchpad.